What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode five of the Cuffcast, a resource for all movies strange, weird, and traumatic. On today's episode, we have esteemed writer, director, producer, distributor, Mr. Lloyd Kaufman, and special co-host, Cody Cook. Holy shit, Mr. Cody Cook himself joins us in the studio. For listeners at home, Mr. Cody Cook uh, runs the Night Terrors Film Society with God Greg. He uh, runs the Globe Cinema in Calgary, showing the coolest shit. Cuff's second home. Well, first home. We run our office out of the basement now. Yeah. So, the home of Cuff. And, and I understand he's also an actor in some trauma films. Yes, uh, and maybe trauma's biggest fan. Welcome to the show, Cody. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, coming out into the studio and uh, getting to share my love of trauma and trauma films, so. So listeners at home, trauma has been making some of the grossest, sexiest, gnarliest, cheapest movies since 1974. And Mr. Lloyd Kaufman, our guest on today's episode, has been the writer director of the best trauma movies, I would say. But from like trauma fans, Lloyd is definitely like the the person, you know. And it was so good to have him on the Cuff Cast. I've met him a few times in person. First time I met him, I was so nervous. I think Rhett was there, and I'd like psych myself up. It was at the it was at the Plaza. Yeah. Was it your screening of Toxic Avenger? Yes, that would have been mine. Yeah. Oh, I was so nervous, and I I bombed it, and I was kicking myself in the butt. And, uh, but the next time I got to talk to him was for uh, Shakespeare Shitstorm, which Cody's an actor in and shot some of the behind the scenes, which we just showed at the recent cuff. And my God, he's such a gentle, nice man. I expected him to be like so much more manic, but uh, I think having Cody around calms Lloyd down. We get to see a real personal cute side of him. Yeah, you see all those like behind the scenes documentaries of Lloyd and you think he's just like always like at 110% and just like, uh, but then when you actually like get to hang out with him, he's just like this nice old man. You yeah, know, that he's, he's like, he's an artist. He behaves like you would expect an artist yeah. to behave. He turns it on when he's got to, mm-hmm. but is actually very thoughtful and, uh, the interview with him that we got to do was so wonderful. But boys, let's talk about what was your introduction to trauma? I remember, oh, I was first introduced to trauma while staying at my dad's house. He had a roommate in the basement, Pete. And Pete would always bring home a stack of tapes and there were movies I wasn't allowed to watch. But I would always go, Pete, what's this one about? What's this one about? But then I got to class in Newcomb High in one of his stacks and that cover, I was like, need to watch this movie. Pete, what is this one? And I kept bugging him. I'm like, Pete, when my dad's on a date tonight, can we go watch this? And he's like, yes, just don't tell him. I watched it, it was so good. And what I noticed was there was a little sticker on the side of it, which meant kids couldn't rent it. Cause I was allowed to rent R-rated movies, but certain movies like Troma, there's no way I was no. allowed to watch that. Cause it had the little red sticker on it. And so what my brother and I would do when we were allowed to rent for ourselves at my dad's when he was away on a date, we would always look for the ones with red stickers. 
And that's when we'd rent, but we would rip off a piece of paper from a receipt in our pocket to cover up the red sticker. And most of the red stickers were Troma, and I would notice right away, you can't forget that opening Troma logo, mm -hmm. right? The big city, the big music, yeah. you're fired up. But then when you stick around for the movie, yeah, you would just see some of the most subversive, cartoonish, wild imagery that you want to see as a kid or a teen. And mm -hmm. it truly shaped my taste in movies by chasing the red dot. Why are they telling me not to watch this movie? And you're like, oh, because it expanded my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even though like, you know, Toxic Avengers, like, the big showpiece one, for me too, it was Class of Newcomb High 2 was the one I, was the first trauma one I watched and it was a similar thing, you know, it was with my dad was at the video store, he would let me rent anything and my parents would often watch it with me or whatever and so I rented Class of Newcomb High 2, I thought the cover looks cool, like just a bunch of weird crazy characters on it. And then started watching with my dad and it was just like so uncomfortable, you know, watching with the parent. Because of the nudity, the violence, yeah. the subversion. Yeah, the subversion. The, there was a one mutant had like a mouth at the belly button and was doing oral things with that mouth. And it was just like, I'm 10, I'm scared. <laughs> but it was a great intro to it. And I was sort of hooked ever since just wondering like, what, how could this be made? You know, I'm used to watching, you know, Hollywood movies and stuff like that. So it was just, that was my gateway and kept going ever since. What about you, Cody? So mine's way back in 1991 when the Toxic Crusaders came out and I, because I was a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and fan. And this is the cartoon version of the Toxic Avenger. Yes, so back in 1991, they licensed out the Toxic Avenger to do a cartoon series by the same people that did the T Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And because I was such a fan, I was like, oh, I need to watch this Fan show. of the turtles. Yeah, big fan of the turtles. So I had to watch the show and I loved Toxic Crusaders so much. I got the Marvel comics and then I was getting the Toxic Avenger comics and I would get like, you know, lunch pails and all that kind of stuff. NES and, game? Yeah, <laughs> NES and Genesis games and the Game Boy game and then I had like... When did the movie fall into it? The actual live action movie? So then I, I had to find the movie because I was like, oh, I love this cartoon and then I realized that there was a movie, a live action movie. So I was probably like 12 when I saw the movie. I saw the R-rated movie which is the cut version of it. Then when you see the unrated version, you're like, oh, it's this gross. is way different. Yeah, yeah. But then because working at video stores when I was a teenager, we always just like had trauma sections. And so I was like always watching trauma movies. Like, so the big, big ones for me were like Redneck Zombies and Cannibal the Musical. Everybody always had those on their like, favorite video shelf like staff so, picks. Yeah, staff picks yeah i saw and, cannibal on there a bunch and they were always on my staff picks too every time i worked at any video store i always had cannibal the musical i always had redneck zombies i always had class of newcomb high because i'm like these are movies that people need to see and especially if you're like young and impressionable i'm like watch cannibal the musical and then follow trauma the way i did you know like from a kid and i was like watching the cartoons and then i started watching the live action and then just became obsessed with it those vhs boxes always caught the eye that was like yeah. always so like lurid or the, i remember yeah rabid grannies or anything yeah. i was just like what the hell is that you know? and their posters are amazing and they've always been amazing and if you can get that art of trauma book there's so much artwork in there of like original posters without any text and stuff it's like such beautiful artwork that they got commissioned for a lot of those old like VHS covers and stuff. So they did that on purpose. They made these amazing posters for these terrible movies so that you would rent them. But right? sometimes the movies matched the a poster. Lot of, a lot of times they did. Especially when Lloyd directs. I when, think the movies match the poster. When Lloyd directs, they did. When they distributed, not so much. And then I got to meet Lloyd at the Poultry Guy screening at the Plaza in 2007, I want to say. And 
I was again like Cam, I was really nervous. I followed him into the bathroom to get an autograph and he was all like, what the fuck kid, like get, get away from me. And then just got signed, like quickly signed it. And then like outside he was Lloyd and he was on and he's like doing all the autographs and everything. But I have this really funny story where he's like, I followed him into the bathroom. Like it was so funny. Cause I was such, at that point I was, I'd been a fanboy for like almost two decades. And so I was like, Oh, I really want to like meet this guy who's kind of my hero and I like got to see one of his movies on the big screen, you know? So, and then since then Lloyd and I have been like really good friends. Like we go out for dinner and we visit when I'm in New York and he invited me out to be in the hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm and like shoot behind the scenes stuff and everything. So they say don't meet your heroes, but Lloyd is one hero you definitely meet because he's yeah. such a genuine, nice, kind man. Yeah, and it was so, so nice to have a candid chat with him on the Cuffcast. Um, so please stick around. Was terrible. I'm very nervous. Cody is uh, one of my heroes, and uh, I, I I I played it perfectly last night, but I get nervous in front of Cody. The first film I want to talk about around 1974, Troma's Sugar Cookies, maybe the classiest film you've ever made, <laughs> with with the exception of the Big Gus, What's the Fuss songs. Ah, yeah. Well, of course. So, how did you fit? Big Gus, what's the fuss music, and uh, a buffoon man-child running the streets of New York into a super classy erotic thriller. And I know you were a part of that uh, development process. Well, I wrote the script. The idea was to do a lesbianic flip on uh, Vertigo, which is, as you know, a lot of people say that's the best movie ever made. Um, I'm, I don't know if it's the best, but it's certainly one of the best. And the critics, you know, when Vertigo came out, critics bombed it because they're idiots. Uh, not the Canadian critics. They loved it. It's the American critics. They're the idiots. <laughs> anyway, the Canadian critics are the best in the world, especially up in Calgary, uh, out west there in the Central Mountains. They got that clean air, clean water, trauma <laughs> movies. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't know what I was talking about, but Sugar Cookies was the idea uh, uh, was to do a tribute to Vertigo, except make it lesbian. And uh, Ted Gershuni, uh, who was older than uh, I was, uh, let him direct it. I raised all the money through my uh, rich Yale friends, including Oliver Stone. And the movie was very boring. Oliver kept telling me I should direct, and he was correct. But uh, what are you going to do with Ted Gershuni, who's a good guy and, and loves film and a good buddy, but uh, he was older and had this uh, kind of slow European pace uh, to his work. So I tried to insert a little bit of, of ribald, uh, I don't know, whatever, freeball, uh, 
blue ball, that's the word, uh, right blue ball. And uh, that's why the character of Big Gus came out, uh, the young boy who's in love with his uncle and uh, runs out in the street naked. Now, we had a scene like that in Cry Uncle, which, as you know, Troma distributes. It's uh, one of the early films of uh, John G. Avelson, the Oscar-winning director of Rocky and director of Karate Kid and, in uh, my opinion, the most underrated uh, American uh, director in history, except for George Romero. Yeah. So uh, where in the formation of Troma was Sugar Cookies? Was this one of the early films that you'd try to raise big money for to try to, you know, prop up the studio? Uh, no, this actually Sugar Cookies was prior to the creation of Troma. Two older guys, guys I met at Canon, a company called Canon, where I had my first job and where I met uh, John G. Avelson. Those two guys wanted to form uh, their own Canon. So uh, they, for some reason, focused on me, probably because they uh, thought uh, I had a few bucks. And indeed, uh, my friends did have a few bucks, and uh, I raised all the money. And, uh, of course, the film ended up being the only X-rated film in history to lose money. So I think that, you know, I don't get enough recognition. I, don't think, I think I should get more recognition for that. And as if that wasn't enough, we then made a movie called, in Israel, called Big Gus, What's the Fuss? And uh, that was even worse than Sugar Cookies. Sugar Cookies is a good film. Uh, it's just boring. Uh, Big Gus is an absolute mess because uh, the Israelis took over once we got over there. And uh, Menachem Golan and his team, he delegated. We, they looked at us as uh, like rich Americans and had no interest in the movie that I could see. And it stunk. They, we had a very good script. Uh, Andy Lack, who, who's still running NBC News uh, here in the uh, Americas, he was associate producer. And, uh, and again, he and I raised all the money. And unfortunately, the script was uh, totally changed over in Israel. And when Andy and I got to Israel, uh, to Tel Aviv, uh, there was this uh, horrible script and there was nothing we could do. We should have closed it down. We should have just gone away and, and, and saved the money that we didn't spend. But that was a chicken. I, you know, I didn't have the guts. So what would you consider the first official trauma movie, Lloyd? Well, um, the first success was Squeeze Play, uh, which was uh, based on the Equal Rights Amendment and women's liberation. And, and there was a raunchy movie about a village where the men would go off and play softball and leave the women to clean the kitchen and cook. And, and the women uh, felt abandoned, so they formed their own softball team. And the film ends up with a, uh, a blue ball, I mean, a ribald uh, climax of a game between the uh, women and the men. And in fact, I just saw a segment of F is for Family, where they had a woman champion in Jayalai versus a male champion in Jayalai, uh, women versus men. So very interesting. Highly influential film. Yeah, and plus it had a, you know, we had to shoot uh, these uh, softball uh, practices and games. And it was the first time I shot everything in uh, Super 8 ahead of time to try to figure out the angles and how do you shoot a triple play and stuff? I've, I watched a few baseball movies, but in those days, they, uh, there were no good ones that I could find. There was one with Gary Cooper by a good director, and I used a gag from the Blue Gehrig story, I think Pride of the Yankees. But other than that, I couldn't find any good baseball. Squeeze Play was very, very successful, by the way. It came out before Porky's and this uh, trend of uh, raunchy comedies. So we had the field to ourselves pretty much for uh, four movies. Uh, and then the uh, studios, the big studios started uh, making the same kinds of movies. But as usual, they play uh, unfairly. They use uh, good 
scripts and good actors and uh, <laughs> we had to go on to something else. That was what stuck on you, um, Waitress, Squeeze Play, and um, what's the fourth Vincent one? Vincent D'Onofrio's first movie. Oh, yeah, First Turn On. Yeah! Yeah, yeah that's the movie that uh, my brilliant partner turned down Madonna for. Right. Uh, one of our many, one of our many regrets. <laughs> so how are you distributing your early films, Lloyd? Were you finding a few select screens? Were you doing drive-ins? Uh, what was the early trauma distribution process? Well, the first uh, movie, Battle of Love's Return, which I made uh, uh, in 1970, and my uh, Yale classmate, Gerard Glenn, along with Frank Vitale, with whom I had worked on Joe, also directed by Mr. Adelson, uh, Battle of Love's Return played uh, a number of theaters. It was shot in 16 millimeter feature length. And it wasn't my first feature, but it was the first one that was slightly watchable. And a nice lady in New York who owned uh, the Thalia Cinema, which was uh, uh, similar to Cody's Theater. Uh, she played uh, the thing for two weeks. And, um, and then we got a few other theaters on Battle of Love's Return. Oliver Stone is uh, in it. Uh, my father's in it. Lynn Lowry is her first movie. And uh, it stinks, but uh, the trauma guys kind of like it. So maybe there's something there. I don't know. So you'd only have one or two prints that you'd move around or did you print a whole bunch? Well, with 16 millimeter, there wasn't much with 16 millimeter, other a few theaters and uh, uh, colleges. And uh, it was a big problem because the colleges uh, uh, were very irresponsible. You'd send them a 16 millimeter print. They'd never send it back. You know, that kind of stuff. Right. Or steal the good parts for themselves. Well, they do that. The colleges don't do that. Well, we don't have much college uh, with 35, but the projectionists, that's why we don't. We charge a lot of money if a theater wants to show any of our 35 millimeter prints because they always come back with the head crushing taken out or the famous car flip that's in Sergeant Kabuki Man. So we've got to charge a lot for the, uh, I mean, when I say a lot, I'm talking about 750 US dollars, which is pretty worthless. But, um, uh, you know, we, it's, a, it's a, you're right, the collectors are, we're missing a Mother's Day print and we think it's at uh, Quentin Tarantino's theater, but I, we're so oh disorganized, we couldn't say for sure. Yeah, the new Beverly, we think we never got it back. Eli Roth hosted my brother's movie, Mother's Day, uh, there, and uh, I, we just weren't paying attention, so we don't know where the print went. Let's jump right to Mother's Day then, Lloyd. How is that dynamic different, you know, working with your brother as the director? And that one sort of seems to be one of the first ones where you start to get more into the horror side and more a little like pushing the envelope even further, like in the content perspective rather than from just humor. Just wondering the genesis of that, working with your brother, you know, how that all went down. My brother uh, is the most talented in our family. And Mother's Day is a genuine masterpiece. I mean, you look at that movie and the script is brilliant and uh it, it's all beautifully interwoven my sister was the uh, susan l kaufman was the art director and there are all these funny little details that she puts in mother's day is eli roth's favorite horror film although it's not really a horror film it's more of a satire of american culture and uh charles uh, every he made three or four movies they're all brilliant but he couldn't move up from the uh, basement of Tromaville. And he lived in Los Angeles for 10 years and just couldn't talk the talk that the creeps can talk. And uh, so he now owns a uh, enormous artisan bread business. He's got about 400 people in San Diego who, who work for him and has a cafe called Bread and Sea. And he supplies the best, I hate to say French, but it's actually Canadian bread, uh, Quebecois <laughs> bread probably. Uh, I don't want to give the French any credit. 
But um, <laughs> they've got uh, all types of breads and uh, pastries and all the... If you ever go to San Diego, he'll hook you up with the best raw chocolate chip cookie dough as much as you want, which is the only reason I talk to my brother at this point. And uh, no, no, that's, that's a joke. Uh, anyway, he's had his own vision. It's a wonderful film. It's great. It's 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 a pity that we, we and that Troma and he couldn't really... Uh, the movie was very successful. There was a full-page ad in the New York Times uh, when the film uh, broke in uh, New York, uh, about 200 theaters, I think. We didn't distribute it initially. A bigger company, United Artists uh, Distribution, uh, distributed it and uh, did a very good job. And then uh, they got bought by Columbia or Coca-Cola. Somehow it ended up in Coca-Cola collection because Coca-Cola owned Columbia. And they were there at the, but then we got the rights back, so... Uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're uh, it. Uh, you know, these wonderful retro movies are uh, the good ones. Are have a new life now with the drive-ins coming back and uh, and uh, the uh, things like uh, Troma now, the hot new platform that's better than Netflix and uh, uh, streaming. You know, the streaming thing and uh, and Mother's Day is, uh, I, I would say, one of our most successful. And in its day, it was. I think it was number one uh, on Variety's uh, box office. Uh, they used to have a page of the top 50 grossing theatrical movies. Man, I bet that set was so fun because the whole cast, they have such like an energy about it that you're right. It is more of a satire to watch them play within this American dystopia. Did you get to visit the set, Lloyd? Was it as fun as it looks? Sure. It, it, it was not as fun as it looks, no. Oh, shit. And that old woman who's in it, the old woman who was in it starred in uh, a show called Car 54. So this was like a big come down for her to do it. It's just like uh, the people on the Toxic Avenger who did the stunts. We hired some fancy stunt people for safety purposes, and they made it very clear to us that we were a piece of shit on the uh, railroad track or something. Uh, you know, that's the problem. But she did a great job, the woman. I can't remember her name, but she, she did a wonderful job, as did the other two actors. Uh, my brother is so much nicer. Uh, he's uh, uh, got a wonderful, uh, generous personality uh, on set. So everybody loves him. Uh, it was, uh, in fact, I think the guy who shot it was Len Lowry's squeeze at the time. Uh, oh. he, I can't remember his name, but he did a good job too, whoever he was. All right, let's fast forward the Toxic Avenger series. We're gonna try to lump this all into one convo here. My first question, Lloyd, are you a comic book fan or were you a comic book fan? Interesting uh, question. Uh, one of the few things I, I took away from uh, Yale University aside from drugs and uh, a dabbling of my major, Chinese studies, uh, was um, comic books because the fellow next door to me had a big collection of Marvel comics. I wasn't allowed comic books as a child, and uh, I didn't really read them. I remember Oliver Stone, we were childhood friends. He had a collection of Scrooge McDuck and uh, classic comics. I had no interest in the classic comics, but the Scrooge McDucks, uh, I loved them. And then I didn't see comic books till I got to Yale and, and uh, saw my uh, buddy's uh, collection of uh, Marvel comics and immediately uh, thereafter got in touch with, uh, somehow got in touch with Stan Lee. And uh, we headed off around 1968 and uh, I wrote a script based on his uh, story, Night of the Witch, and uh, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not a comic book expert by any means. I don't read comic books for the most part. I did take a part in the short-lived uh, Marvel Toxic Avenger series. Uh, I did uh, give them some input, but on the Toxic Crusader series from Marvel, if I remember correctly, that was all uh, Marvel. And they did a great job. Uh, 
I ask because it feels like Toxic Avenger could have been the first superhero movie if you didn't have the head crushings and the boobies and Sagaa face. Did you ever think of making it like a more family-friendly film? I never thought about that. So that was just an afterthought for Toxic Crusaders by a different company? Well, no. That uh, What happened was the toy company called Playmates, who were manufacturing both action figures for Ninja Turtles. They were also financing the cartoons. Ninja Turtles was running out of steam. And they had, an, they had a consultant who suggested uh, an environmental superhero. And I guess nobody had bothered to watch the Toxic Avenger, but uh, they made uh, you know two years worth of uh, cartoons called the Toxic Crusaders. And, and uh, Jeff Sass, who worked for us for about 10 years, he and I wrote a number of the cartoons. But most of the writers on the Toxic Crusaders, uh, Chuck Lorre, by the way, uh, who created... Uh, two and a Half Men. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. everything. Uh, yeah. Roseanne show, uh, yeah. uh, the one that's on now about the, the scientist nerds who love comics. Big uh, Bang Theory. Uh, yeah. yeah, Big Bang Theory. Some of the worst shows of all time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He wrote the theme song, Toxic Crusaders, Toxic Oh. And uh, he also wrote the pilot cartoon. And we a very nice guy, loved Troma, and, uh, you know, got the idea of Troma, satire plus uh, dark side plus uh, as much uh, violence as the cartoons would permit, you know, if uh, five-year-olds could uh, digest. Uh, so he wrote the pilot, and they were off and running. But uh, then uh, the downward slope of Turtles started to come back up. And then New Line, who was, we had about 200 companies making... Uh, licenses, uh, underpants for children and uh, uh, color forms and tops, collector cards and candies and a million different beach, everything you can think of, plush toys. And then a new line had signed a guarantee to make a movie, a big movie based on Toxie. And uh, they, uh, when the Ninja Turtles started to come back up, uh, new line had uh, kind of looked like they kept us as a uh, stalking horse. They kept us if by chance they couldn't make a deal with the new for a third Ninja Turtles, they'd have Toxie in their back pocket. They just didn't tell us that. So uh, we sued them and uh, four years later, uh, some blood. as I see it, they destroyed the franchise because everybody bought all the 200 companies, uh, however many there were, bought the uh, franchise for all the different categories and were starting to uh, release them, including the action figures and the cartoons were running. <laughs> And then uh, New Line uh, decided they weren't going to honor their contract, which was a guarantee to make the movie. There was no option. It was a, a guarantee. So they totally fucked us. And we sued them, and it took four years. But uh, we spent, we had to spend, we could, you know, anyway, a sad story. But now Toxie's roaring back with a really good director, and oh, yeah. it really looks good. Yeah, the making Blair Toxie has great promise. Have you been involved in that, Lloyd, other than getting a nice fat check to... Make your latest opus. They didn't with? get a nice fat check. In fact, uh, it came to a point where we would have to cut our fees in half if we wanted the film to be made. And Michael Hurst, uh, being a wiser than I am, discretion is the better part of valor. He wanted to see the movie made, so he uh, blinked, and we accepted. That's what they do. Uh, and and Legendary has been great. I got no complaints. The fact that they chose Macon Blair uh, it showed a lot of courage because he's only directed one movie, and he's a huge fan of trauma and and really has drilled deep into uh, our 50 years the script is terrific i was over in uh, bulgaria 
and uh, uh, Macon gave me a cameo. So I went over there for two days. And, uh, it looks terrific. The script is better than the original. I, I've given Macon a lot of notes, uh, some of which he, uh, you know, he's very pleasant about taking notes. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's got a great uh, bedside manner. And uh, I don't, and I think he has listened to some extent on the pathos side because uh, the, the script they're shooting has a lot more emotional kind of pathos for Toxie than uh, I think his first drafts. So I, I think he's open-minded enough to, uh, to steady the course. And he's doing a great job. The cast and crew love him. And I wish I could say more other than uh, I had a couple of embarrassing. Uh, I went up to a guy who I thought was Peter Dinklage. And I started, uh, you know, kissing his ass and all, you know, all the, oh, thank you so much. And I loved you in the moment. I couldn't remember the name of his series because I've never seen it. But uh, it turned out that uh, a lady came up to me and said, he don't speak, uh, he doesn't speak English. So it was the, uh, the uh, <laughs> what do you call it, stand-in for Peter. And then uh, there was Toxie in the, in the costume. Uh, so I figured again, oh, I, and I started buttering him up. And that turned out to be a lady stuntman inside the uh, taxi uh, appliances. You're a man of the people, though, Lloyd. It's expected of you. <laughs> so I want to talk about the artwork of the taxi movies. All of the posters are bangers. What was your approach to marketing materials at the time and to those posters um, particularly? Well, the first poster, we tried uh, a couple of different artists Michael had the idea of, uh, in fact, we found a big pile of the theater cards with the original artwork on it, which was not showing Toxie's face, but having his face backlit by the sun. And you, the idea was you would come to watch the movie and buy a ticket because you wanted to, partly because you were curious, what is this thing when the tutu? And, uh, you know, the trailer even said, so horrible, we can't show you his face. Uh, that didn't work. <laughs> And uh, and so then a, a guy uh, named Sid Blaze came my way. I can't remember how I met him, but he uh, he he created the, the poster that's quite iconic. And then uh, a, a guy who was uh, looking for work named Jeff Sass happened to, and he had a pretty good resume with a, a company called Satori, which for about a half hour was quite in the it was getting a lot of attention. Um, and uh, he came in the office and he, he looked at the poster and uh, uh, I guess he had seen some of the movie. And he said, why don't you make the tagline the first superhero from New Jersey, which we did. And then we hired Jeff Sass, who worked for us for about 10 years. He and I wrote the Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD. And uh, we wrote some of the cartoons together. And uh, he wrote a book recently uh, called uh, All I Need to Know About Marketing. I learned from the Toxic Avenger. Sort of mimicking the James Gunn uh, book about uh, filmmaking. Uh, all I need to know about filmmaking, I learned from the Toxic Avenger. An essential book. And during this podcast, we're going to assume some listeners have read it because there's some great history in there and we could spend two hours talking about the Toxic Avenger. Oh, yeah, Avenger. we could literally just talk about the Lloyd's book series. So I'm going to skip ahead to okay. Citizen Toxie. Lloyd, this might be the most fucked up movie you've ever made. <laughs> What was the spirit behind Citizen Toxie? Why does it have such a chaotic energy to it? And it still feels shocking to watch. And I love it. I mean that in the best way possible. I say it's the best of the Toxic Avenger movies. It's the most interesting. It's the most uh, uh, ironic and sociologically penetrating in uh, every way. 
and um, it's uh, funny as hell. And the, the whole thing, we start really uh, making fun of the uh, soup. When you see James Gunn's Suicide Squad, think back on Citizen Toxie. Are you telling me that there's a gang of, of men in diapers in the, in the Suicide Squad? <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea was, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the, um, a, lot of, a lot of the energy comes from what was going on at the time. The uh, school shooting in uh, Columbine, everybody was dancing around it. Uh, the uh, abortion issue, which is still the, probably the number one uh, issue uh, that dividing Americans uh, other than uh, the Trumpers. Uh, people still don't get that women should have the right to uh, their, uh, you know, our country is making it harder and harder to have abortion. And the citizen toxic hits all these, uh, these buttons. And uh, also the, uh, I, I, I think the uh, interplay with Toxie and Kabuki Man and all the superheroes who immediately die, uh, I think it was great. And was this the first DVD that you did one of your massive documentaries for, the behind the scenes? I think maybe Terra Firmer. Oh, Terra Firmer did have a full-length yeah. documentary. Terra Firmer was first, yeah. It, I learned so much more from the Citizen Toxie documentary, though, personally as a filmmaker. It felt like you showed warts and all on that one, and it led to the other great feature-length making of documentaries that I've plugged on this podcast a couple times but they're essential for independent um, filmmakers. On top of the Make Your Own Damn Movie box set, I feel like I'm plugging Troma, but I am. Yeah. You need to see these. You need to see how to make cool movies with very little money. You guys were really on top of special features. Uh, can you talk a bit about what drew you to it and how you maximized the potential of the format? Well, Michael and I, once we got established and were successful, <laughs> using air quotes, uh, we decided to try to raise the profile of independent art because we could see that it was uh, getting, uh, you know, there's a tsunami of uh, American uh, oligar oligopoly that was uh, coming uh, over the uh, world of art in the United States. And uh, we wanted students to uh, have an idea that they didn't have to uh, work their way up the food chain in uh, Los Angeles. You know, graduates of Harvard University who are cleaning toilets in Los Angeles before they can become agents or whatever, uh, wasting their lives. Uh, you can make your own damn movie and uh, get along with it. So a part of our, I guess, theme was to try to uh, show people how we do it and uh, tell the truth, not those HBO behind the scenes where the biggest problem is we didn't have Perrier water that day. You know, like, well, you can see, if you see the Poultry Guys uh, documentary, uh, Poultry in motion, truth is stranger than chicken. It's a sad, it's hilarious, it's violent, it's sexy. I mean, it's, I don't understand. I'm with you. I think these, these uh, feature-length documentaries are brilliant. And yet, you know, there have been very little in the festivals. They're definitely more interesting than these shitty documentaries on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Can't get any attention other than, uh, luckily, from our fans who keep us alive, like you guys. Fan-fueled. Fan I hope to see a nice big shitstorm uh, documentary. Justin Martell and John Brennan, two of the producers of Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, they are producing, uh, oh, actually, Matt Mangiarides, who worked for us for many years. Mm -hmm. The three of them are producing uh, Joe Bob Briggs' show. And uh, Yuki, who came from Japan to be the scenic designer on Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, He's the art director. We were on that show, and there were about eight of the uh, crew, almost all the crew were Troma. I just got an email from uh, one of the makeup people uh, on uh, Shakespeare Shitstorm. 
uh, who's apparently just worked on Joe Bob's last drive-in show. So, uh, you know, Troma has a uh, real family, a pretty big footprint. Joe Bob is doing such great work for the genre community now, too, in terms of fan-fueled releases of stuff like hack lantern is now on the people's court and these weirdo movies are coming back into the zeitgeist and there's just so much great work to discover especially from trauma he's always been very uh supportive and interested in the uh more independent uh, i guess in the, I mean, he called them exploitation movies uh, back in the day but uh, i don't think that's the right word but he's always been a great supporter of our our world when you guys screened trauma's war there was that joe bob's decision or did you want to show that one as a favor to yours or how did that come no, about i i was at home minding my own business and uh <laughs> i mean i was in the trauma office minding my own business and michael hers got a call from uh, justin martell saying joe bob wants to run the film and uh so uh, and my wife and i went on the show and uh, we had a great time and uh as i recall the uh trending on uh, troma's war was huge that uh, i was amazed how many people were watching troma's war in one night because yeah. even amongst troma heads that was kind of like one that people would watch from time to time but uh it, it never felt like one that caught on, but now it feels like it's destined to be one of the classics once we get a nice new release out. It's a cursed movie. The MPAA, our rating board, totally destroyed it before they would permit it to play in theaters. So it got totally fucked in the, in the theater distribution. And then, um, you know, they took out everything in the movie, even uh, punches, uh, MPAA. They, we based our R-rated version on uh, Die Hard, and Die Hard had so much more serious violence than we did. And the MPAA cut every piece of punches, uh, bullet hits, uh, everything, anything that uh, they could find an excuse to cut out. So by the time we got the R-rated version to the movie theaters, our fans thought we were selling out. And the people who wanted to see a war film who drifted in, you know, old men from the army, uh, they saw, what the hell is this with the uh, Siamese twins as uh, running the big conspiracy and all that kind of, you know, the, the military industrial complex symbol. They had no idea what they were. So the movie was uh, flopped. And uh, if we if we had been in debt like so many independent uh, film studios, uh, we'd be gone. But uh, luckily, we used our own money. So uh, we didn't uh, uh, we didn't get uh, bankrupt, although we lost a lot of our own money. And then when it came out on DDD, there was some curse. I can't something bad happened. Uh, with the DVD, and uh, it just never had a, any luck. Whereas the Toxic Avenger, and I say with Toxic Avenger, we got it right, but there's been a lot of awfully good luck. I mean, it's the musical, a musical comedy based on the Toxic Avenger by a guy from Bon Jovi, the keyboard guy. Who would have expected that? And it's great. I saw it. You saw it? I even have, Lloyd, I have the Jones Cola Toxic Avenger from the musical. Three <laughs> bottles, three <laughs> bottles of the Jones Cola. <laughs> that's great that's terrific so let's talk about sergeant kabuki man okay so lloyd this is kind of another like oddity in the trauma lineup because you have these really like raunchy comedies and these kind of hard r movies and then you teamed up with namco to do this kind of like lighter kind of comedy that you were then they were going to license off to do like cartoons and there was going to be like a an amusement park and all this stuff so can we maybe talk about like where the shift came why you went from like, you know, the Toxic Avenger to kind of the lighter little like more comedy um, version of, of like Troma with Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD and, and where the partnership came from and stuff like that? 
Well, the lesson learned from uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD, is that, and I have a, you know, I'm not like Edith Piaf, uh, j'ai beaucoup de regret. Uh, I regret that uh, I didn't work more cooperatively with the people at Namco because they were lovely. They were great. We had made Toxic Avenger Part Two. Uh, about a third of it is filmed in Tokyo. And we had a character called Kabuki Boy. And uh, the press over there picked it up. <laughs> they loved it. And uh, at a press conference, uh, uh, when we were selling uh, the third movie, I mentioned, uh, they asked me, what are you doing next? I said, well, we're going to do Kabuki Boy. And we hope that uh, you, know, you all will love it. And the next thing I know, our agent uh, hooked up with the uh, chairman of Namco, who eventually got bought by uh, Bandai. But they uh, Namco created Pac-Man and all that kind of stuff. And Mr. Nakamura, who died recently at the age of 99, uh, he was so rich and so powerful that his son-in-law took the name of his daughter when they got married. Uh, apparently that is done there with very powerful people. Uh, in America, we don't need to because the wives totally control everything and uh, take away our penises. But um, back to Japan, the Namco people, I was obsessed with the Kabuki man eating the worms and uh, they couldn't, they didn't, they were so disgusting. They kept, they were very polite about it. They kept, and there were other things, too, that they had. They were perfectly, they put up half the money. So the movie was a million bucks compared to Toxic Avenger, which was under 450,000 U.S. dollars. And they were very nice. And I kept, uh, you know, there was some back and forth. And I did uh, take some of their notes. But there were things like the eating the worms and uh, some of the other stuff that, uh, you know, was too much for their audience. They had a, a series of small amusement parks around the Japan and they wanted Kabuki Man to be kind of a character there. And stupid me, I had too much of my own thoughts, and I should have compromised a, a bit more. Uh, I did to some extent, but, uh, you know, they, they went along with it. And Kabuki Man sort of wasn't uh, really fish nor fowl. You know, it's kind of has some of the, it has just enough of the graphic violence and uh, hot sex and interracial sex that uh, would keep it out of uh, a lot of the uh, mainstream, uh, not platforms, but whatever we had in those days. And, um, you know, it just didn't didn't really, even though our fans uh, love it, and uh, many of our fans say that's our best movie, and it may be one of our better-looking movies. And Kabuki Man himself, we keep uh, he keeps appearing. I, I love Kabuki Man. Stan Lee's favorite trauma movie was indeed Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD. And he criticized me. He told me, what well, you should have made it more mainstream. You could have gotten Jim Carrey. He was friends with Jim Carrey. And he tried to get Jim Carrey to nurture a big-budget remake of Kabuki Man. But the problem is uh, Spielberg also, uh, his company, uh, called me into L.A. to uh, talk about Kabuki Man. And I remember the guy from Jurassic Park uh, was sitting in the waiting room uh, with me, twiddling his thumbs. Uh, but, uh, you know, I blew it. I blew it. And that's a big lesson there. I talk about it in uh, at least two of my books. Mm -hmm. And the Let's movie's good. I'm not putting the movie down. No, it's a great movie. Like, I love that movie. It has a great uh, a theme. The theme uh, at the time, the uh, Japanese were very economically powerful and they were buying up American assets. And there was a huge backlash against Japan. And that was kind of what motivated the idea of the Western, the, the Western policemen mixing with the ancient Japanese culture to uh, bring peace and love to the world. 
that was where it came from. The, uh, we had a congressman who, uh, when the Japanese bought Rockefeller Center, they bought it. Uh, and the people were outraged. A congressman called it Pearl Harbor all over again. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So that was the uh, kind of the foundation of how I got the idea for um, the, the theme of Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD. Uh, but um, it wasn't really graphic enough for, I think, the real underground fans. And yet it was too much for uh, uh, when it played at the Film Forum in uh, New York, which is an excellent theater for independent and retro movies. Uh, it didn't do well. And we advertised quite a bit, too. So, you know, it just was too much at the time. I feel like that's kind of a recurring theme with Troma is like it, the movie comes out and it doesn't do really well. But then the fans, the rabid fans, it just like builds up and up and now everyone loves it. So Kabuki Man's a really good example where it's like it was too much for the mainstream. But all, a lot of fans say it's the best Troma movie, right? Like, You're right. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, I agree, Cody. I mean, take some of them. Terra Firmer took, I think, 15, 20 years to break even. I mean, really. And now uh, people love it. I mean, with the Blu-rays, uh, uh, you know, we can't keep them in stock. I love Terra Firmer. That might be one of my favorite trauma films because you really show your personality in that one, Lloyd. You, you're dropping references to John Ford and Sam Peckinpah in a movie that has a very perverted killer, obviously. But you, you're kind of deconstructing the filmmaking process along the way. You continue to be avant-garde, as Cody just mentioned. Mm -hmm. There's a new movie that y'all are distributing that I think feels quite avant-garde right now. Uh, the Nobodies is a quick shout-out. That's a great movie, isn't it? Yes. It's a beautiful movie, and it's essentially the types of movies straight-to-video fans are drawn to, but then it deconstructs the filmmakers and the, the toll it takes on these dreamers who are ridiculed by their friends and family for making movies that they believe are art and it's kind of like when i watched that film i was like oh this is like the ultimate trauma film that trauma picked up and distributed because trauma couldn't make something so that serious i think it's quite po-faced um but i think that one will hopefully catch on uh in the near future i hope so too uh, they're great guys very talented and um people loved it it's just uh, you know we don't have any money to advertise uh and the business sucks so it's very hard to you know, to, when when we have a, a Black Widow opening, it's hard to you know get any attention. And we have a movie opening in New York last uh, two weeks ago. Uh, the New York Times wouldn't even review it. It's it's uh, the final beginning, uh, slashing, uh, by Brandon Basham, who uh, spent five years making them. I produced it. He spent five years on it, and um, he wrote the hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. I've been making movies for over fifty years uh, in New York for the most part. You think the New York Times might at least review uh, a movie, which opened in a theater and played for two weeks with little or no advertising, a very small theater, film noir in Brooklyn. And uh, people love it. It's a wonderful film. But uh, if we can't even get reviewed after 50 years, Michael Hers and, and I and our, you know, here's the, this is a company that James Gunn came out of, Samuel L. Jackson. Eli Roth, uh, probably a hundred famous people. Ernest Dickerson's first film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, Paul Walker, the late Paul Walker. I mean, you'd think the New York Times would, would show us enough respect to at least review the movies. When Toxic Avenger came out, Vincent Canby, the lead the critic, uh, chose to review Toxic Avenger. Uh, and there were plenty of big movies that came out at the same time. And he reviewed that one and he chose that movie. You know, they they were more courageous. Now they we don't exist. Terrible. Yeah, but the New York Times, the lead critic, did devote a whole page of big print 
how wonderful that uh, Fast and Furious 9 is there for us. We're back in the theater and, you know, twisting himself into a perverted pretzel to support the advertising that the New York Times uh, is on the needle. Uh, uh. And it's not only the Times, Lloyd. This is a plague across the nation. It's, yeah. Uh, in all countries. Like, yeah, across yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. You have to find. You've got to find the people you like. You got to find the boutique labels. You just got to follow the talent. So, but how how are things doing for your older titles now that you distribute? Now that there's been such an influx in uh, boutique labels releasing these types of films, and I know that you've reclaimed the rights to some of the films as well recently. So, can you talk a bit about that, Lloyd? Well, the, the movies that we distribute, uh, the licenses are twenty years. For example, Redneck Zombies. And um, we uh, had to pay another fee to get another 20 years or whatever. They're good guys, and uh, we've done a good job for them. But, you know, we have a fairly generous distribution deal. Uh, we just don't have any money really to promote. So um, there's some new movies. I just produced a movie by Mercedes the Muse, whose uh, movies, uh, we a couple of mo her movies we distribute. Divide and Conquer is uh, going to be amazing. It, it is amazing. It's finished. Terrific. So do you have any uh, new Blu-rays in the works or uh, any future plans for Troma Now? Uh, is uh, Shakespeare Shitstorm going to be on Troma Now early or what, what's going on with uh, your great new platform? Uh, I wanted to plug my profile on Grindr. Oh, nice. Uh, and then uh, we've got a bunch of new Blu-rays coming out. And um, uh, regarding hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, uh, we're booking theaters now. Uh, it'll open in L.A. and New York, but after... Uh, the fall uh, when the the, uh, the COVID, uh, you know, the Delta, they call it the Canadian virus. Uh, yeah. Uh, gets less threatening, you know, the, the Delta. We call it Canadian virus, of course. Uh, I'm joking. Bad joke, <laughs> sorry. At any rate, Troma Now. Yeah, Troma Now. It's great. It's a, it's a $4.99 a month, a thousand, uh, at least a thousand movies and shorts and music videos. The first month is free and... Uh, now you can get the Troma Now app, the app which uh, allows you to watch uh, safely and conveniently on uh, on uh, Roku and uh, Google and uh, TubeGalore.com and uh, Google Play and uh, Apple TV and uh, uh, young boys from Bangkok, uh, all the great uh, platforms so yeah we we just wanted to wrap up just asking a question because uh when you were deeming all the films that you considered a success that you'd made here i think the thread through a lot of them was that you were always mentioning like the political things that you were doing with them or you know the, the message that you were sending with them so you, you seem very driven that way and uh, i know with a lot of genre filmmakers you know they're more influenced by genre films and that's the films that they're making but in the interviews i've seen of you 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 seem to always cite you know the french new wave and and uh you know sam, uh, sam, fuller, sam a lot. fuller yeah a lot of other filmmakers that you know aren't particularly making genre films but more you're impressed more by the the messages of the films or you know the art house sensibilities and so i know trauma you've got more of a fun sort of uh playful and aggressive sort of style to to what you're doing but i guess what kind of fuels you in terms of what movies do you like to watch or are you very political in that way like when you're thinking of shakespeare's shitstorm are you thinking of the gags or are you thinking of like you know the messages that you want to kind of start to push through into mainstream culture and things like that well, um, I had a very uh, socialist uh, grandmother who, when I was very young, uh, gave me stuff to read and kind of pushed me in the uh, leftward, I suppose. <laughs> I was the only kid in my class in uh, 1960 who was against the Vietnam War, you know, that kind of thing. 
and uh, at high school. And um, Poultry Guys is a perfect example. Uh, the McDonald's moved next door to our building, and they were horrible. Uh, we had rats the size of raccoons in the basement. Cody's been there. And uh, I mean, they did other bad things, too. And I'm sure it's not the corporation. It's probably just the lazy people who work for underpaid people who worked at McDonald's who uh, are underpaid and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of single mothers and all that stuff. So uh, they can't do all this for what they're getting paid. And um, at any rate, I read the uh, Fast Food Nation and uh, and I always wanted to, being a gay married man, I always uh, wanted to make a, a musical. So I thought the anti-fast food and the Indians uh, getting exterminated along with billions of chickens being uh, sadistically uh, farmed, uh, uh, industrial farm, and uh, that made a very good theme for me. And uh, Poultry Guys, again, it's great. And the documentary is wonderful. Uh, hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm. The Tempest is my favorite Shakespearean movie. And I would have done it earlier, but I wasn't, I didn't feel I was old enough uh, to really understand uh, t uh, Prospero's soul and what he was going through. And, um, the, you know, it's all about loss of power and uh, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we did Tromeo and Juliet with uh, James Gunn wrote the script. Uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, the hashtag Shakespeare shitstorm, now that I'm as old as Prospero or maybe older than he was, uh, I, I get it. I get it very much. And uh, so I, uh, I, I found uh, uh, also the fact that there were themes that uh, have been uh, very uh, bothering me a lot, namely the uh, television and commercials for uh, uh, pharmaceutical things. Uh, every five minutes in the morning, they don't allow trauma movies, but they do allow the selling of drugs when children are uh, watching uh, morning television. Uh, so you institutionalize and normalize the popping of pills. And now we have this year alone, 80,000 Americans uh, died from uh, drug overdoses, not uh, marijuana or uh, uh, that kind of stuff, but from uh, prescription drugs, opioids or whatever. So that was a big theme, the idea that, uh, well, you know, big farmer. And then, of course, this whole thing with Twitter hate and uh, cancel uh, cancellation society and uh, all that kind of stuff. And I love Shakespeare and uh, mushed it all together uh, and uh, along with a giant shitstorm, uh, which Fan Fantasia was nice enough to play. And uh, did you guys play it? We yeah. played it. People loved it, Lloyd. Oh, yeah. good. You just do such a great job of blending the the highbrow and the lowbrow, and and making sure you know people are having fun. There's there's the gags for everybody, but you're always having a big message that's you know punching up and making sure people are aware of these great causes and social touch points. So great job. Uh, and thank you for pointing that out because uh, again, I'm 75. So when I was uh, getting into movies, which was in the 60s. People like Samuel Fuller and uh, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Jean Renoir, uh, Fritz Lang, Stan Brackage, Roger Corman. I mean, they, they were the people upon whom I uh, stood uh, on their shoulders, I think. And I became very friendly with uh, Sam Fuller, and uh, he loved Troma's War. He loved it. He, he could see through, uh, you know, he, he saw the director's cut. He understood the uh, maggots-eating people and all that type of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, he was a real artist. And... Uh, same with uh, the Larry Cohn and uh, uh, Abelson and uh, Fritz Lang. I made him sit through one of my early movies. Uh, you know, they, they, they were open-minded. They were nuanced, uh, which is different than what we have today, where you have uh, 
one movie taking up all the oxygen around the world. So, uh, you know, it's important, I think, to have a point of view and have something to say and, and to read books. So you have a, there's something, you know, not just uh, uh, the, um, the zombie TV show with uh, Peter Dinklage, but uh, watch uh, George Romero's zombie movies. New York Times uh, did a huge uh, promotion for uh, uh, 28 days earlier, tw the second 28 days, as if this invented the zombie movie. No mention of White Zombie, no mention of, uh, of uh, Romero, uh, certainly no mention of uh, people uh, like Troma or any of that. It was, it was about 20th Century Fox and how wonderful they were bringing us. You know, so unfortunately, now I've promoted, although it's a good movie. I got nothing against the movie. And those, those guys are very talented and blah, blah, blah. Thank you for uh, understanding. Thank you so much. I really feel good that you have even heard of John Ford. <laughs> oh, we love him here. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lloyd, I want to add your name to that list of people who've had such an influence on the industry. It's so obvious when you watch some of these new films that they were highly influenced by trauma. I'm looking at you, Crank. I'm looking at you, Gunpowder Milkshake. Y'all yeah. were watching trauma movies. You owe Lloyd some credit. Get him in your movies and give him like a nice three minutes. Give him a nice three minutes in the next one. <laughs> so thanks so much for joining us, Lloyd. This was a true honor. Uh, would you mind playing us out? Yeah, I'd be delighted. Let me uh, see what I can do here. All right. That was so nice to talk to Lloyd. That filled my spirit. And I'm glad he's like feeling the love from the community and can't wait to see the new Toxic Avenger. I really hope it's dope. Honestly, just talking to him about the remake is getting me really jazzed. Like, I really want to see this now because it seems like he's been giving notes and like the, the director has been really receptive and like Lloyd's going to have a cameo and stuff like that. And I, I actually had the privilege of meeting Macon Blair and we talked trauma. We only, we talked like weird genre movies and he's a writer of some very classy noir films. And like that's Blue the, Ruin. Yeah, Blue Ruin and, the, and, and the, he was the actor in The Green Room and stuff. So I feel like if this guy's an actual fan and, and brings those sensibilities, brings those to, sensibilities it. to the Ooh. remake, it'll be really good. Because if he can keep it feeling like low budget, but with a higher budget, I think it'll be great. Yeah. So. It was just crazy to hear like he had a cameo and like Peter Dinklage actually was there. It's like, this is for real. Like we've been reading taglines and, and news Right, it articles. felt like it would never be made. Yeah, yeah. For, for years. Like the Revenge of the Nerds yeah. movie. Yeah, that was half made and then they just abandoned it. But that's what I was always yeah. thinking with this remake for so long. I was like, oh, this is never going to happen because it's just like a pipe dream and blah, blah, blah. And now Lloyd's like, I was on set. Yeah. Like, yeah. this I is actually wait. happening. So I cannot wait. All right. It's time for the Golden Boys report. And now, just for a quick reminder, the Golden Boys, Cody's a member. Rhett's a member. I remember we're all old men that have stacks of movies that our partners refuse to watch with us because they look like something completely out of their wheelhouse. Or well, I don't know why they wouldn't watch this next one. But Cody is uh, going to handle our Golden Boys report today. So I wanna, I'm want i going to queue you up. You ready? Yeah. Special Golden Boys report from special co-host Cody Special Cook. Hey, hello, coming in live from Globe Cinema. This is reporter Cody Cook. We just finished watching... 
Strike Commando. Bruno Matai Strike Commando. With the great red brown. And <laughs> his, his hair should get a second billing. This guy's got a beautiful set of hair. His body is dope too. He's like big, man. Yeah, he's, he's definitely like cut. Like he he fights this one guy in the movie, and they're both just like beefcake. Yeah, like, dude. <laughs> if you notice when I introduced his name, I yelled it because every single line he has in this movie is yelling at somebody. Yeah. And you know what? I like it. Yeah, oh, I like yeah. it. I think that's Energy. the that's the appeal of like David Ayer's movies is yeah. that they're always yelling at each other, or maybe Zack Snyder's. <laughs> yeah. But Strike Commando is the pure form of it. Now this was just put out by uh, Severin, mm -hmm. uh, and the second one was released as well, which is not supposed to be as good, but I do hope we have a Golden Boys Night. I, I do definitely want to watch part two because it's supposed to be completely different, and so I want to see the tonal shift in the movie. Like, but I actually I thought Bruno Mattai did a good job directing this one. But he's, he always does. He's gets you, shit he on. Gets, he gets he's the butt of a lot of jokes. Yeah. But do you think that's because he comes in to finish movies that were maybe going to be bad anyway? Maybe he also because he's kind of like the journeyman director where he. Will just like do anything and everything he's done all genres like he's done the giant crocodile movies and he's done the war movies and he's done the gialli and all that kind of stuff so i feel like when you watch his movies people are just like oh he's just like whatever but his movies are actually really good so many explosions in this like this is obviously a commando rip off but he's not swinging down uh, in malls and stuff it's just like a, in the jungle a flavor of commando yeah, right yeah. a commando universe movie in the philippines completely in the jungle Lots of explosions, lots of machine guns. Like the movie starts with machine guns and like air, arrows flying and stuff like that. It feels very much like Rambo meets um, Commando, you know? Like, because there's even scenes where they're gearing up and stuff that feel yeah. very Rambo esque and everything. But, but none of the nuance of those movies. No. No, this is low-budget like Italian. It's Rem like, remember this. This it's is like, low-budget Italian. It's, like, it's Italian, though, and that's the thing. Like mm. Even the low, like Claudio Fragasso, who wrote it, and often partner of Bruno Mattei, like, they're always shit on, right? But they still have a great style. Like They're always moving the camera. they got energy. They're blowing yeah. things they're like, up. They're like an animated G.I. Joe cartoon come to life. And, yeah, then, they, yeah. and then with nastiness piled on. That's oh, the yeah. thing, is because it's an Italian film, they can get away with a lot of that stuff because the Italian audience, they were used to that. So they can have more nasty, like, you know, blood and... And, and we and kept repeating, please, no animal death, please. Because yeah. it does... Some of these movies feel legit dangerous. You're like, yeah, at any yeah. moment... There's someone whose life is at stake, or a poor animal who may get dismembered on screen, and you're just like, please. Like, that's actually where the suspense comes from I know. in this movie. You're like, yeah. please, please, not that iguana. Let it just walk around yeah. for fun. Yeah. yeah, and I don't remember. I don't there weren't any. No there weren't any. Yeah, Afterwards, weren't I any. patted you on the right. back. I said, it was shot in uncharted territory where right. there are no rules and there was no animal death. And that's good for me because sometimes I get really uncomfortable with animal death. I close, I just, I close my eyes. I actually plug my ears sometimes now. But, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. I don't want them to truncate these movies, but I would like a special feature option like they do have on uh, Cannibal Frogs where you Frogs, can yeah. watch it without them. And I appreciate that, too, because there are people like me where I'm, like, you know, vegan and everything, and so I don't really want to watch Poor Little Animals. And this movie was, like, fun, and like Cam said, a lot of suspense from us <laughs> where we're like, oh, God, please don't let somebody get hurt. Because you know? it felt that reckless. Yeah, yeah. They're always that reckless, yeah, it feels that Because I've seen a lot, even Sergio Martino movies where, like, people have died on set, you know, like... And so you're always a little wary when you're watching these films because you're like, oh man, these they're flying on the by the seat of their pants. Yeah, that explosion is right beside the main yeah, actor. Man. Like that's not a stunt guy. What's going on here? So, but I mean, that's how they made these films: really cheap, 
really fast, yeah. you know, because they and they just, weren't even they weren't blowing up miniatures in this man. There's were, one miniature in the whole movie. Yeah, that that bridge. Yeah, that's whatever. quite obvious. But everything else, like full sets getting blown up yeah. and everything, like it was majestic. Considering how low of a budget. Like, oh yeah, I've seen a lot of Italian films where you're like, how did they get away with filming that? Like that that would probably took like a week to set up, and then like they had to have tested and blah blah blah, and then they blow it up, and you're like. They had no money. How did they even do this? American films can't get away with that. Like, and then the Italians keep one-upping themselves. Because I remember at the end, we were like, what? That's the end? That's how they killed the guy? It was oh, like, yeah. so obvious. And then it's like, oh, no. And another. Right. <laughs> one more. It was this movie totally has the return of the king ending where <laughs> yeah. it just keeps going and going. Like yeah. that last ending is worth waiting yeah, yeah, for. Yeah. Except they weren't dialogue scenes. No, that were it's the just plot action It'd just be action. another explosion. Yeah. 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 So unlike Battlefield Earth, this was a delightful uh, movie for the Golden Boys to gather for. Okay. Get Strike Commando, support Severin, one of the best in the freaking business. I love Severin. I love the boutique labels, but they're up there like Severin and Vinegar Syndrome for me just because of some of the releases. Like, it's, they put out some of the best stuff. Like Lloyd, they're fearless. They'll release whatever, and they, they have no qualms about it. So, Strike Commando. Check it out. Toxic Crusaders! Toxic Crusaders! I had no friends, no girls that helped me till I got radioactive ugly! Toxic Crusaders! Toxic Crusaders! Mail day, boys! Alright, what do we got? Oh shit. Siege. I remember Jason Eisner was talking about this. Something tells me he knew this Blu-ray was in the works. It was like, we interviewed him. We're like, what's your favorite Canadian movie? He's going, Siege. And we're like, oh, that sounds awesome. I can't wait to see it. And uh, it's very hard. It was hard to find. Right. I went to all the torrent sites that I'm allowed in it, into and uh, mm -hmm. couldn't find it. And then we hear the Blu-ray's out with the Jason Eisner commentary. So That's awesome. we've already repped the company, Severin. They kill it. But they're killing it with a Canadian movie this time. This is a Maritime Gonzo Siege movie. It's like the Assault on Precinct 13, rural style. And based on true events, too. And based on true events, I honestly cannot wait to watch it. I've never seen it, but right on the front, Jason Eisner saying the best Canadian film ever made. And Jason Eisner, hobo with a shotgun, that's big words. Like, yeah, that's, man. Yeah. yeah, a true gentleman, too. I cannot wait to watch this. Thank you, Severin. So Cody, what do you, what do you got? Okay, this... This, for any Cuff fans, this actually showed at Globe Cinema during Cuff. So I got Let the Corpses Tan. Ooh, and we played that loud. Yeah. Oh, so loud. <laughs> and Cam, Jordan, and I watched it when it played. And, yo, this movie it, it kills in the cinema. Oh, yeah. All the Morricone, like, oh. the soundtrack and just... You feel this movie. Oh, yeah. And it, the Kino Lorber coming through with a beautiful release. And, like, I actually... I cheated and did watch this again. Jordan and I watched it because I love this movie so much. So um, I love it, and it's the, and so it's not really a giallo throwback. It's like it's a, a spaghetti it's like western Euro crime. Um, Euro crime. It's a spaghetti western Euro crime homage. Like yeah. they they but it's from a French married couple who also did Strange Blood of Your uh, Strange Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, which we showed at Cuff as yeah, well. Cuff as well. And Demare. And it also like it feels like the two genres combined. Like it's like these two sensibilities of like French art cinema and, and Italian exploitation cinema, you know? Like, because it's got these French sensibilities, but it also like very much feels Italian. Yeah. And I absolutely love this it's movie. It's their best movie, I love it so much. Oh my much. God, it's so, because Strange Color is very like manic and it kind of like doesn't really have a linear story. So when you're watching, you're like confused a lot of the times, which is very geometric. It's fine, I love being confused. But this one is very straightforward and it has all this weird time stuff where they like show the same scenes, but from different angles yeah. and everything. And it's, it's, it's 
just a fantastic movie. And it's on Canopy. If anyone listening has a Canopy membership, you can watch it free. And that's through the Calgary Public Library. Nice. Red, what do you got? Great streaming on Canopy. I love that. Uh, I have Lady Stay Dead Ooh. from Code Red. Uh, this was a VHS favorite from the great Ozploitation movement in the 80s. Uh, 1980, I think it came out. But uh, real, real nasty sensibility with this one about uh, some really normal looking guy. Actually quite looks like one of our friends, Trev. Uh, and uh, he's just going about uh, doing some very devious things uh, out in the outback there. So quite quite an interesting oddity. I'm glad Code Red put it out. So is this something like Maniac where it just follows around the crazy dude? Kind of, yeah. And he's got like, you know, he's stalking and he's got his shears and he's, I think he's a gardener or something like that. So is it a yeah. slasher, but from the killer's perspective kind of, or? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Cool. It's got the slashing stuff, but then it's also a little bit more like, yeah, the maniac like torment of this dude. Right. And he's quite the quite the quite the character anyway. So it's a it's a weird, bizarre one. I think it's I've been kind of in that exploitation mode lately oh, after yeah. watching uh, Next to Kin on Joe Bob not too long ago. So yeah, definitely want to check this one out. All right, guys. My second one is also a movie we played at Cuff, also a genre throwback: Knife and Heart from Yan Gonzalez. This movie is a super gay slasher. I, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. It's a giallo that takes place on the set of gay pornography where mm. there's a very cool woman who runs the entire operation who's investigating uh, a lot of her actors who are going missing and the cops not caring about it. Like it's actually very politically relevant to right now but with beautiful giallo throwback uh, cinematography mm -hmm. and a wonderful score from M83. This score is fucking... Crazy Plus good. The lighting man. is very giallo-esque. Yeah, like. yeah. Well, there's, there's, yeah, there's no two ways about it. He, yeah, loves giallos yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, Jess Franco-style movies. I mm -hmm. actually had the privilege of seeing uh, him do a Q&A at Fantastic Fest when this movie premiered, mm -hmm. and uh, it was just a constant list of references, nice. which they do talk about in the special features here. But there's also a music video from Yang Gonzalez on here. Two short films. Um, and if this is from uh, Altered Innocence, which is one of the partner labels of Vinegar Syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sadly sold out now, but you can still find it third party for a pretty good price. And uh, I believe it, the film's also on Shudder. So watch Knife and Heart. You will be touched emotionally, but also like this movie, You again, like Let the Corpses Tan, you feel this movie. You wear it like a trench coat after oh, for days yeah. afterwards. Oh, yeah. We got code, man. All right, another Severin because oh. it's Severin, and they put out a lot of good stuff. And this year's been really good. So, so good. I got the Christopher Lee box set, but I've only watched two things out of it. So oh, I'm so you gonna... watched your mail already? I I'm so, such a cheater. <laughs> this so it's like you didn't just get this in the mail, Cody. <laughs> they did. I did it. <laughs> no, that's not true. I had knife and heart for it. Ah, let's not ruin the illusion. Okay. No, no, I, just... I haven't seen this yet. No, it's mail day. Um, you just got it. So this is Christopher Lee in Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, directed by Terrence Fisher. Terrence this is, Fisher, dope. This is a German Sherlock Holmes film, but shot in um, London. But there's a lot of scenes, like I think a lot of the interior scenes were still shot in Germany. And the film is actually in German. And watch the German version with subtitles. Do not watch the dubbed version because they don't actually get Christopher Lee to dub his own voice. They get some rando um, actor and it's awful. So the German version is way better. And this is a black and white film from 1962 and it has Christopher Lee as Sherlock Holmes. 
and uh, he it's like the main villain is Moriarty and stuff, so it's a very Sherlock Holmesy movie. And I'm not. But Severin puts it out. Is it kooky at all? It's it, the thing is, is it's it, it has kind of like that, but it's like a, a Sherlock Holmes film, and I am not the biggest Sherlock Holmes fan, so I don't know how it plays with a lot of the other ones. Like, are they supposed to be like hokey and jokey, or are they really serious? Because depends depends on the storytelling. I guess like so this one because this is a I guess. Um, the the owner, like the the author or whatever, he was very like particular with what um, types of stories were released. Mm. And um, sorry if I'm if there's any Sherlock Holmes fans, and I I don't know the author's name. Arthur Arthur, Ar- Co- Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Arthur Doyle. Conan Doyle. Oh I guess the the his estate was very particular with what was released and all that, and so this one is a little more serious. It's actually a pretty good movie, and I watched it with the uh, the commentary, and it's with uh, Kim Newman. Oh yeah, Kim and, Newman. And Kim Newman is OG. like, and he's like a Sherlock Holmes like fanatic. Oh, he very knows, cool. Like, everything about. So if you watch with the commentary, it's actually really like he's super knowledgeable about the character and where this story fits in the history of Sherlock Holmes and how they picked Christopher Lee and Sherlock Holmes is supposed to be this like master of disguise. You get this like 6'3 <laughs> dude who's supposed to be not Sherlock Holmes and people are like don't Moriarty like doesn't recognize him when he walks by and everything. You're like what? But it's I'd actually, watch Christopher Lee in anything though. Oh yeah but that's the thing is it's Christopher Lee so it's super charming and he's so funny and it just the movie is really great and I'm really excited to dive into the rest of the box set but because I pulled this one out because this was one of the first ones I watched out of the box set I was like oh just I don't want to talk about the box set as a whole Mm -hmm. because I could talk about the whole episode about the box set so I'm like I'll talk about Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace cool thanks Cody good Sherlock Holmes one Um, Lloyd got me all nostalgic for older directors and you know getting to make their last films and I hope Lloyd's got a few more films left in him because I want to see them so uh, I want to revisit one that was certainly maligned and uh, we watched in theaters together but uh, Wes Craven's My Soul to Take I tracked his disc down And I wondered why you were talking for so long. I wanted, I needed to set wow. it up there. I, I want to give him another chance. You know, good I, luck. I Quentin Tarantino was talking recently about most directors when when they're wrapping up, they don't really uh, have it left in them. And so I want to give Wes one more chance to to redeem himself there. But there, there's some fun stuff. There in is soul some fun to take. stuff. There is some. It's worth watching again. You can tell it's like a Wes Craven film. You know, it's like definitely truncated, man. It feels like it got messed with, like, Cursed. Like, when I watch Cursed, I'm like, oh my God, there's a good movie in here. This movie, too. Not so much this movie, (laughs) but I think they got neutered by some other folks. There's some cool, like, I like the killer. He's got, like, the trench coat and dreadlocks and stuff. Like, he's, like, a really (laughs) weird, like, crazy guy. It just reeked of Hello, Fellow Kids to me. Even rewatching it, it's like if Wes was forced to make some choices. But I don't know, it feels like it's got all those, like, the dream kind of sensibilities and, you know, I hope you like it. I hope you like it, and then maybe I'll rewatch it and I like it. I want to give it another chance. He deserves it. Wes is still a god. Yeah. Wes is certainly a god, man. Rest in peace. All right. Last but not least, I just picked up the, uh... Wait, wait. What is that? (laughs) What What are you holding? No, 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 no. What? I have I brought that. No, that's... No, the Dungeon of Andy Milligan. You guys got this too. Yeah, I brought that as well. No, (laughs) this is perverted. You guys brought the same fucking disc as me. Yeah. All right. Wait, but but did should we even talk about it then? We might as well. But like, what the heck? Back in action, baby. We got the Dungeon of Andy Milligan, and that sound was me dropping it and damaging (laughs) Rhett's book. So I'm gonna have to give him a new one. Guys, I've been waiting forever for this. Andy Milligan. 
for those of you who don't know, he's known as one of the worst filmmakers from Stephen King's perspective. Yeah. I think Stephen King has a very closed mind. Also, if you're talking about the, one of the worst filmmakers of all time, Stephen King is Seriously, up. man. <laughs> Maximum because Overdrive is yeah. awful. Andy Milligan puts his whole being into these movies. You learn about who Andy Milligan is through the choices in these movies. Yeah. As I said rewatching one of these, I was like, it's like a junkie is putting on Shakespeare on the side of the street for heroin money. These movies feel dirty. They feel of the time. Lot of discussions about gay rights and AIDS and, and sex workers. The and horrors like, of sex workers. Yeah, yeah. Nobody was making these movies. And the best, like the best part about Andy Milligan is it's a time capsule of where he was filming. So when you watch Fleshpot on 42nd Street, it's literally a time capsule of New York City. And Fleshpot isn't about like the hardcore sex. It's about seeing New York at that time. It's about the people that lived on 42nd yeah, Street. People like the down and out people and the less fortunate people. And, and you're not watching it because it's a hardcore film. You're watching it because you're like, this is New York. Well, they're not even talking about hardcore stuff. They're arguing about rent. Yeah. They're yelling yeah. at their mother. Yeah. Like it's that kind of stuff where, and a lot of Andy Milligan stuff is he gets, you know, kind of like lumped in with the Al Adamson stuff where it's like, oh, he's this schlocky, like drive-in director. He's that... an auteur, man. These are Freudian yeah. movies. <clears throat> like like Todd Browning, too. He liked to celebrate the mm -hmm. freaks. Like he always had like a hunchback guy in his movies all the time and several of them. There's always like some weird, interesting character that most people wouldn't put in their movies, right? But he always had that weird guy kind of adding a bunch of texture and flavor to it. Yeah, and then when you read through Venom, the attached book from Stephen Thrower, which is a beautiful what, like, author, yeah, Night, like Night, Nightmare pages USA, or something like they do the breakdown of each of his budgets, and you can really see Andy would have made a movie with any money. Yeah, he would have a hundred grand for one project, then it would go to like forty grand on the next one, then seventy grand on the next one, then twenty grand on the next one. He just kept making them with his friends and family. But if you read the book on Andy Milligan, the ghastly one, he probably he wasn't the coolest dude to be around. This, right. He was a workaholic, really committed to just getting these done by any means necessary. And, and he's, was, he's doing his own costumes. He's yeah, always like just beautiful putting, costumes, putting too. it all into it. Yeah, putting more money into the costumes but, and the set de decorations. But that's a, the, yeah. kind of like a downfall of him as a creator because he put too much of himself into his work. Yeah. Like way too much of himself into his work. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, Thank you, Severin. Yeah. Honestly, thank you for this box set. Even if the booklet inside's not that well designed, it kind of, if you pull it open too much, the binding will rip off, the glue yeah, will rip yeah. off. So be gentle if you buy this set. But the special features, the context in which the movies are presented. It's a great deep dive because you can yeah. watch a whole bunch everything. of his movies and you see he actually remade a bunch of his movies with the like there's about four of them that I've seen already that have the plot device of everyone getting back together to read someone's will. And then all of a sudden there's like some dastardly thing happening. Everyone's dying. It's like, that, he does that like four or five times, right? But it's funny because yeah. again, he there's parts of Andy where it's like he seemed very auteurish where he was like writer, director, but then it the also- The talent. But some of his other films seem very like journeyman films. Oh, like they yeah. were just hiring oh, him. Oh, the to, audio's to, terrible in yeah, some of them. Yeah. One of them, uh, one of my favorites, Seeds, the camera never stops shaking, and I like that because it creates this tension and a sense yeah, of anxiety. Yeah. But that was an error in, because the film stock they had couldn't handle the handheld camera work. Right, right. And so uh, 
you know, he wasn't the best technician, but man, what an artist. So. But he and he was operating the camera, he didn't carry. Like he wanted in on all Faces. that stuff. Yeah. Didn't matter if it was out of focus and looked bad, he wanted to see people spit when they're yelling. Yeah, and that's the kind of like uh, I can relate Andy back to Lloyd is Lloyd is very hands-on with all his films. Lloyd wants to hold the camera and wants to know where the shots are going to be and wants to make sure like everybody's giving their all, but it's it's also about like, okay, let's just get it done and then get the next shot. You know, like, yeah. and Andy feels very much like that. And yeah. you can also really tell with Andy's films that he's just pushing to get the next shot, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but I mean, it's very like endearing when you watch these films, like, and people don't give it enough credit. And that's why I'm glad Severin did. Severin sure like, does. Yeah. This set is beautiful. You gotta pick it up. I love that we get to end on the note of weirdo auteurs because honestly, I'm quite emotional from our Lloyd chat, man. Because right. he's such a god, such a great presence in the industry. We don't even have to talk about the people he's influenced, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But it's just all of the indie people he's influenced. You talk to any horror filmmaker and there will be some trauma in there that was like, you can do it. You can make your movie. Mm -hmm. And when you do make your movie, make sure it's you. Make sure it's your id and like it's mm -hmm. something that someone else can't make. And so and God bless like, you, Lloyd. Thank you. Yeah, putting your heart and soul into it. Like that's what Lloyd always says is like, you know, it's about the art and it's about you speaking and being true to yourself, right? And and it coming out in your art. And, and I feel like that's always with Lloyd's films is it's very much like, a piece of Lloyd and then we're getting that and we can like experience that you know like even if you're on another continent and you're still watching one of Lloyd's films you're experiencing a part of yeah, his worldwide fans yeah so that's what I love about Lloyd and, and I, I hope he makes like a ton more movies he always had something to say and he still does yeah so it's great to be able to sit with him today well thanks for listening to episode 5 of the Cuff Cast and Cody thanks for joining us we're gonna bring you back obviously oh great I'll, I'll come back anytime oh. so I uh, have no idea who our next guest is, but I assure you, it's going to be someone whose brain is worth picking. Thanks for listening to CuffCast, everybody. And again, Cody, respect.